recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 7th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. The topic of tonight's program, as Sword Brother and I were speaking just a few short weeks ago, is who set the Reichstag fire? And tonight I have Sword Brethren again with me, with me once again in order to, um, to present three articles discussing the Reichstag fire. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you, Bill? Wonderful. Uh, I, um, you, you know, nothing irks me more than people, especially white nationalists and identity Christians, that repeat the blurb that Hitler and, or the Nazis set the Reichstag fire. It's as bad as Hitler's a Jewish agent, Hitler was a pagan. When somebody says that Hitler or, or the National Socialists set the Reichstag fire, they're basically just repeating the same Jewish drivel and the same Jewish propaganda that has filled the minds of Christians for 100 years. That's it. We don't need to hear this sort of crap from our own people. It's, it's bad enough that so-called patriot types like Alex Jones would have you believe Hitler was in the Reichstag himself with a gas can in one hand and a match in the other. You know, we hear enough of that from the Jews and their shills and their paid patriot lackeys like Alex Jones. We don't need people in our own movement, you know, um, drooling over that nonsense, sopping it up. Of all the communist uprisings in Germany, in light of all the communist um, subversion and, and destruction and, and their attempt to tear down German culture, just as we saw the communists tearing down American culture in the 1960s and 70s, it was the Jews in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, and the first reaction, and, and the, the, the National Socialists stuck to their guns, which may have been a strategic error, their first reaction was that this was indeed a communist plot to burn the Reichstag down. Right. Now, that it, it's possible, it, it's probable, I'm sorry, it's most probable that they were wrong about that. This was really one lone communist nut or, or, or really socialist nut, but, but um, it, it's the, the National Socialists had nothing to gain at the time by burning the Reichstag down. Right, and can I just give a real quick backdrop as to some some key communist violence in the several years before Hitler came to power that would show that there was a tendency for mass violence. On, uh, of course, on 14 January 1930, Horst Wessel answered a knock at his door, was shot in the face by a communist assassin who then fled, and he, it took him about four weeks to linger and die, and ultimately Albrecht, Holler, an active member of the KPD, Communist Party of Deutschland, was sentenced to um, several years' imprisonment before being executed by the Gestapo and the, the NSDAP came to power. That seems pretty weak that the Weimar government would give this guy um, just a few years, and he didn't really get justice until the um, NSDAP came to power. But that's just one incident, one assassination. And you might say, oh, that was against a rival, radical, extremist group, Nazis versus communists. Well, here's something a bit more middle of the road. On August 2nd, 1931, Communist Party members assassinated two police captains, Paul Anluf and Franz Lenk. They were approached in a mostly red district, and they were shot in the back. Sounds like the weather underground. And then those two communists, one was Eric Milky and Eric Zemer, they then fled to the Soviet Union. They were spirited away and, of course, Milky later became the head of Stasi in um, East Germany. All the other people who were involved in the shooting, though, wound up dead. 
they were silenced, aside from um, Walter Ulbrich, who was a, a main agitator who decided that Milky should be the gunman. And, of course, Ulbrich later became the leader of the East Germany after the war and the Soviet occupation. But let, let me ask you, how many times were Nazis going around in the 20s and 30s and assassinating police captains? Well, well how many... Um how many people from 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 the the right side of the political spectrum in the sixties and, and seventies were doing likewise? Name an incident. White nationalists. White nationalists should understand that that people that care for their race and 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 their people don't do those things and, and don't take innocent lives at risk. It's always been the the extremists from 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 the. Jewish side of the, of the political spectrum that has carried out wanton acts of violence in order to subvert a culture or a nation. And, and that's very clear from history. Right. Well, there, there's, it'd be unfair to say there's never been any violence from the right, but it's exceedingly rare and it's usually very precise and calculated where the left, they'll set off a bomb in a marketplace and they don't care who dies because they just don't oh. care. All the time, collateral damage. They assassinate people wantonly. They, they destroy innocent lives all the time. Bombs under cars, bombs in marketplaces. That, that's always been the the, um, the tactics of, of the Jew and, and, and the communist and the Bolshevik and, and every other form that the Jew has had throughout the centuries. Sacco and Vanzetti and, and, and things like that. Well, well, people will argue with me that they're not Jews. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's always been their tactic. Well, if you're an anarchist setting a bomb in a marketplace, you might as well be a Jew. Absolutely. The, the blood of Canaan is still there. Okay, I have one short article I would like to present before we, um, before we begin this and, and demonstrate just who did set fire to the Reichstag. And, and we have three articles tonight. The first is from Der Spiegel. It, it's a relatively recent article. It's a news item, and it shows that the the political left, and, and which today is the political mainstream, right? The political left of the 30s and, and through the 70s today is the political mainstream. Don't be fooled by that. And, and this article shows that the political left really has no evidence against the National Socialists. Well, Bill, you know... Article, this, let me explain the three articles first. The second article we have is Fire in a Reichstag by Peter Wainwright. It's quite concise. It was at the Institute for Historical Review. And the third it is by Fred Blayhut, and it ran in the Barnes Review in, I think it was January of 1996, and it's entitled Myths, Wartime Propaganda, and the Burning of the Reichstag. And while the Wainwright article is, is good, it's concise, it doesn't really um, make clear arguments. The Blayhut, it, it does give a good synopsis of the situation. The Blayhut article is in-depth, and, and it's a good study of the Reichstag fire. Well, their basic evidence, it's all conjecture, and it's based on the premise that since ultimately the Reichstag fire provided benefits to the National Socialist Party and allowed them to consolidate power, that surely they had to start the fire. And it's akin to saying, well, you know, um, Brian, you had a 
a grandfather, a very rich uncle, they died on 9-11 when the towers came down. You were their sole heir, so you had to be the guy behind the whole operation because you benefited. And I said, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't want them to die, and I couldn't have pulled off an operation like that. Well, you benefited, so you're the blame. It's absolute conjecture. It, it is absolute conjecture, and we'll see that as we read this article. This ran in Der Spiegel on January 11, 2008. It's called Late Justice for Nazi Scapegoat. Now, now this is how the, the political left, the victors, the communists, the victors of World War II, don't tell me that the Jews and the communists did not win World War II. They certainly did. This is how they see this gentleman named Marinus Vanderlub. Marinus Vanderlub is the man who did set fire to the Reichstag, and, oh. and that's without doubt. And this is how the left portrays him and, and, and the incident and, and National Socialists and, and their conviction against him in, in this well, instance. At this point, it might be important to interject and point out that this man was a convinced communist. He was a Communist Party member. He had a criminal history of arson in the Netherlands, and he'd served time in the Netherlands for starting fires. And he said that he wanted to go to Germany to help a communist uprising. Well, well, right. It, it's, he, he was definitely anti-national socialist. Blayhood gets into Vanderloo, but does not label him a communist. And we'll, we'll get into that and, and perhaps discuss it a little later. This is from Der Spiegel, January 11, 2008. The headline, Late Justice for Nazi Scapegoat, Verdict Against 1933 Reichstag Arsonist Thrown Out. The verdict against Dutch bricklayer executed for setting the 1933 Reichstag fire that led to Adolf Hitler's stranglehold on power in Germany was tossed out on Thursday. But who started the fire remains a mystery. And of course, they're blaming all this evil on this plot. That, that conjecturally um, the, the, the Nazis had when they, when, when they burnt the Reichstag down. And, and that, that's what they use as the catalyst for Hitler's rising to power. It, it's all a caricature of reality. Well, you know, too, it's hypocritical. Since when, when we talk about the Kennedy assassination or 9-11, they come back and say, why does it have to be a thick conspiracy with, you know, intricate webs of intrigue and deceit. Why can't it just be straightforward like the official report says? Well, why well, well, does the Reichstag fire have to be a Gestapo conspiracy? Why can't, it just connect the, why can't they just connect the dots? There was a Dutch communist who explicitly told his friends he was going to Germany to help the communists with an uprising. He had a history of arson, and they found him at the scene right after the fire erupted. It, it seems pretty straightforward to me. Why do they have to read a conspiracy into it? half-naked for some strange reason. Okay, back to Der Spiegel. The flames were already pouring out of the Reichstag on the evening of February 27, 1933, when Chancellor Adolf Hitler was first notified of an arson attack. He rushed to the site of the fire, Germany's parliament building in Berlin, perhaps aware that the blaze would help him tighten his hold on power. You see, this is all emotional conjecture. They really have no evidence that the National Socialists did this. This entire article, when we read this entire article, we'll see that they have no real evidence that the National Socialists did this. It's all conjecture. Well, beyond that, they have no, they think they have insight into Hitler's state of mind, what he was thinking. Well, 
where they don't have his diary. They weren't there with him. Oh, well, it's really the Jewish caricature of Adolf Hitler, right? It, it's right. The, the, the Jewish imagination, the Jewish invention that they want Adolf Hitler to be, right? It's what, it's what they would do. They're projecting themselves on the Hitler. Since a Jew would burn down a building to gain power or to mobilize the Goyim for a war. Chris Vanderlube, an unemployed bricklayer from Holland, was found inside the building and confessed to setting the blaze. We'll see later in the Fred Blayhood article that Vanderlube's confessions were extremely precise confessions. And, and he actually outlined every step of the way that he took to burn this building, right? It, it wasn't any, um, anything that was forced out of him. It wasn't anything beaten out of him. It wasn't anything that, that he made up that was a vague generality. It, it was actually an entire outline that he confessed to and, and that very much lined up with all of the fire department investigations. And, and this was a complex confession. It wasn't anything that... Somebody would under duress would would, would um oh oh yeah I'm the one that did it you're right they're right they're right I did it no no it wasn't like that at all and and we'll see that later at his trial he claimed he had acted alone and committed the arson to mobilize Germany's workers in a revolution against the Nazi controlled state he was convicted later that year and decapitated in January 1934. Now, they say decapitated, but when the communists execute people by guillotine, they say executed. Yeah, I've yeah, seen articles right. about how the Stasi would guillotine people, and German newspapers state they were executed, as though it lends some legitimacy to it, where here, decapitated has a connotation that one, well, they're basically just saying they engaged in extrajudicial murder, and they brutally decapitated him. That's the, the connotation they're drawing for you. Absolutely. Now, 74 years after his execution, the German federal prosecutor has thrown out the verdict. The court said it was notified by a Berlin lawyer that a 1998 law rehabilitating those convicted of crimes by the Nazis should be applied to Vanderlube as well. His conviction was overturned, prosecutors say, because his execution resulted from Nazi laws that were created to implement the National Socialist regime and enabled breaches of basic conceptions of justice. Well, well what happened was Adolf Hitler had, had um, gotten a law through to change the penalty, but it never changed the fact that this guy was guilty. It, it only changed the penalty. German law did not allow for arsonists to be sentenced to death when Vanderlube allegedly set the Reichstag blaze. Only an emergency decree passed the next day and made retroactive to include the Dutch bricklayer to cleared the way for his eventual death. And, and the truth was that the National Socialists had hoped that it was the communists who set the fire because politically they had to eliminate the communists. Right. Well, you know, if they didn't want to just charge him with arson, I think they probably could have charged him with sedition, terrorism, treason, insurrection, instigating revolt or fomenting revolution. He said he set the fire as a call to revolution. And typically in most states, fomenting a revolution against the state is a capital offense in itself, regardless of arson. Sedition and, and all that. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, they, they could have thrown the book at him. Long debate over Vanderlube. The case has been debated by historians and legal experts for decades. 
Many assume, and, and most of them have an agenda, right? Many assume the Nazis were intimately involved in the blaze. Now, now look at the way it said many assume the Nazis were intimately involved. So they're basically admitting that there's no evidence, right? Blind assumption. Well, well, right. It's an assumption. A position bolstered by the benefits Hitler's NSDAP reaped from the crime. Within hours of the fire, Hitler's propaganda guru, Joseph Goebbels, along with Nazi bigwig Hermann Goering, had sent bulletins across Germany and around the world. The communists, according to their newsflash, were trying to start a revolution. The country had to act quickly to prevent it. Now, now that might be an alarmist reaction. However, there was a 20-year track record of communist um, sabotage, intrigue, and, and infiltration and subversion of German society and, and, and destructiveness, they had a 20-year track record. Why wouldn't the National Socialists think it was another communist plot? Look at the language, too. Joseph Goebbels was not a propaganda guru. He was a minister. He was a member of the Reichstag. He was the propaganda minister of well, propaganda. They always use the absolute worst language in order to portray and national Herman, socialists. Hermann Goering <laughs> wasn't just a Nazi bigwig. He was the chief of police for. Um, he was the. I believe he was the minister of interior for Prussia, and that made him head of the Prussian police. You are true. The Nazis are the most evil people who ever existed. So they're going to always portray them in the worst possible light with the most disparaging language that they could get away with. Calling him a Nazi bigwig makes him sound like he's a mob member, though, where, you know, according to Wikipedia, Chairman Mao was a statesman, a Chinese philosopher, and a scholar. Joseph Stalin was a statesman and a general. But Hermann Goering is a Nazi bigwig. Well. It's just little things like that. And as you said, the Germans had reason to fear the communists. What, it was um, just as recent as 1919, they rose up with their Bavarian Soviet Republic and killed thousands. Absolutely. There's no doubt. They had a 20-year track record of violence, the communists, in Germany. How many, um, how many political rallies from communist opposition, even from the center, did the communists break up in, in violence? And that they hated the National Socialists because they weren't allowed to get away with that. The national, the brown shirts stood up with them. That's what the brown shirts were for, right? The next day, at the behest of Goring and on the strength of his tale of a coming revolution, the cabinet handed down police power, handed police powers over to Adolf Hitler, a move rubber stamped by agent rubber stamped, right? By aging German President Paul von Hindenburg. Well, so in his role as president, he's approving the legislative bill of the Reichstag. And they just refer to it as rubber stamping, as though he's some decrepit old man laying on a bed somewhere ready to die, and they're holding his hand at a paper. Well, like Angela Merkel just doesn't rubber stamp everything the Rothschilds want. A wave of arrests targeting Communist Party parliamentarians and activists began. They were locked away in hastily erected prisons. And here's the real propaganda, right? That would eventually grow into Nazi Germany's notorious network of concentration camps. A week later, general elections were held. The vote was planned from the outset as a way to consolidate Hitler's power. Though he was named chancellor on the strength of 1932 elections, he, was, he still lacked an absolute majority in the Reichstag. He didn't get one in March 1933 either, 
But by criminalizing the Communist Party on the strength of the post-fire decrees and by patching together a right-wing coalition, the, the Nazis managed to vote the parliament into insignificance, clearing the way for Hitler's dictatorship, what, which is an, a, a very poor assessment of what actually happened in those years. Bill, when, when they talk about criminalizing the communists, I want to just step back real quick to that 1931 murder of those two police captains, the hit was basically ordered by Ulbricht, who was the um, basically the head of the Communist Party in Germany at the time, one of the bigwigs, I'll use the term there. But two members of the Reichstag, Communist deputies, Heinz Newman and Hans Kippenberger, aided and abetted the hit. They provided weapons and helped with the escape. I mean, that'd be the equivalent of a United States senator helping somebody murder a, a police captain in a major metropolitan area, and then they'd say that, oh, we're not a criminal party. The Communist Party of Germany was a criminal organization run like a mafia. Well, well now the communists have won the war, and, and now they keep their hegemony over the minds of the people by running things the same way. And that's why we have articles like this in newspapers. Well, you know, ultimately, um, Heinz Newman received his reward. He fled into the Soviet Union to escape the Nazis, and then he was purged in 1937. The NKVD shot him in the back of the head. And I believe the same thing happened to Kippenberger. Interesting. The speed of Hitler's seizure of power has led many to suspect the Nazis were behind the fire. There was also a tunnel connecting the Reichstag with the presidential palace, where Hitler, Goring, and Goebbels were during that evening. That, that's an entire misportrayal of the facts. They were not there at all until after the Reichstag had, had broke out in, in a conflagration of flames, right? Right. Well, dining that evening doesn't mean they were there at – what time did the fire start exactly? Wasn't it early in the night around like 10 or 11? No, it was earlier than that. It was early, after, somewhat shortly after 9 p.m., I believe. But but they were they were not dining in the presidential palace that evening. Right, and most people probably wouldn't be dining at 9.30. Dinner's over by then. The, the presidential palace that evening only had one person in it, and that was a secretary of Goring's. We, we will read about that in depth in the Blayhood article. So, so it's, this is a total misportrayal of the facts. Goring, Goebbels, and Hitler... They were there that evening, but not until they responded to the Reichstag burning down, right? Right. A, a long-standing theory, this is the end of the Der Spiegel article, a long-standing theory holds that Nazi goons, that they call this a long-standing theory. This is what was something that this was actually, and Blayhood describes this at length, this was actually something the communists made up. Right. Well, I was about to ask, whose theory? They say a long-standing theory. Right, they don't say whose theory. It's from the Brown Book. It's from something called the Brown Book. It's the, an, an invention of the communists after the fire in Britain. A long-standing theory holds that the Nazi goons prepared the building for Vanderlube's fire. A 1959 story in Der Spiegel, however, contradicts that version of the events. The, the Der Spiegel story in 1959 was actually based uh, on investigative research, right, and boyhood. Um, actually quotes and, and cites some of that work. The Reichstag stood mostly empty for decades following the fire and only became the home to Germany's parliament again in 1999. So that's the way that Der Spiegel looks at the Reichstag fire today. If they had solid evidence, they'd have mentioned it. They have no evidence. They, said, they even admit that 
National Socialist involvement in the Reichstag fire is an assumption by some historians. And they admit that right in the article, that there's oh. nothing factual about this at all. There's nothing that, that, that can be proven about this at all. This article is it's just wild speculation, conjecture, conspiracy theory, and then slander and defamation. They use the ugliest words possible, bigwigs, goons. Well, well absolutely. Seizure of power. They'd make you think that, like I said, Hitler was there with a gas can in one hand, a match in the other. He started the fire, and then he went through the tunnel to escape. Well, well, what we have just seen is the argument in favor of Hitler setting the Reichstag fire, or socialists setting the Reichstag fire. And we see that there's nothing to it, that there's no substance at all to the accusations, and the people themselves making the accusations admit that it's based on assumptions. So basically, this is what passes for scholarship. Well, well, right, and 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 when white nationalists and people that should be on 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 um on, on the the side of right against the forces of evil in this world, well, well, they they repeat this drivel that Hitler set the Reichstag fire, and and, and they're basically. Um, merely showing their subservience to their Jewish masters and, and to the communists that taught them those things. That, that's all they're doing. Well, when white nationalists repeat the, the fable that Hitler or the National Socialists started the Reichstag fire, they're repeating the garbage that the Jew has filled their minds with. There's no doubt. Fire in the Reichstag by Peter Wainwright. This is a short, concise article, which um, attempts to show how ridiculous it is or how wrong it is to, to accuse the National Socialists of this fire. All right, shall I read this one? Please. By the early 1930s, the situation in Germany was becoming highly explosive. A third of the workers were unemployed, and democracy was on the verge of collapse. Well, it sounds like they need a new deal. Huh, Bill? Yeah, right. <laughs> the communists saw in this their best opportunity to seize power since their abortive revolution in 1918. A revolution was clearly in the offing, but despite the support of a few million voters in the Soviet Union, power seemed to be slipping from the Marxist grip. The German people were turning to a new kind of socialism, national socialism. And even some of the communists were looking to Adolf Hitler for their salvation. The red response to this situation was one, of the, was one of extreme violence. One notable victim was the 21-year-old poet and voluntary social worker, Horst Wessel, who was murdered in 1930 after writing a stirring marching song for his brown shirt comrades. And, you know, Wiki smears him. They say that he was living with a, a girlfriend who was a prostitute slash former prostitute, and he was killed in a dispute with a communist pimp regarding her on prostitution turf. Well, well, now let's let, let's look at this objectively at the political situation here, right? Well, we have these communists who, who had pretty much um, attempted to take over Germany in 1919. They that they did take over Bavaria for for a short time. That they had um, uprisings in Munich, in Hamburg, and in, in in a lot of the other major cities Berlin. in the north. Now, now the communists were very confident as early as 1919, that they could turn Germany into another Soviet socialist republic, and they failed. And, and the free corps stopped them, 
However, under the, um, the, the Weimar Republic, which was very socialist and, and Marxist in nature, that they, um, the, the communists and had a, a free reign and, and were constantly um, hoping and plotting and, and attempting to build their base for the day when they could successfully take over Germany. They never lost hope in the Weimar Republic. Then, with the the Great Depression and, and the downturn in, in the success of, or, or in the fortunes of most of the German people, the communists really believed that now they could do it. They got it. And they're going to take over Germany. Well, well, up comes Adolf Hitler. And, and with a very popular message and, and very anti-communist, and, and the spirits of, of at least half of the German people are with him, even if they didn't want to admit it. And, and he is about to stick a pin in, in the balloon of the communist hopes to take over Germany. Well, well, why wouldn't they be pissed off? Why wouldn't they be so upset? Why wouldn't they want to um, use force and violence to achieve their objectives when, when, when they're about to lose the, the dream that they've been holding for, for um, 15 years. Well, aren't those the main instruments in their toolbox, force and violence? But, well, they always have. But that, that's, you know, the communists at this point, at the end of 1932, the communists think that they've got it, that they've, that they've stuck this out for 14, 15 years, and they're finally about to prevail in Germany. And Adolf Hitler comes along and sticks a pin in their balloon. Why wouldn't they be upset? So, so that's what's happening with the communists. And people, Americans, are so detached from this today, they don't understand the, the, um, the, 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 the nature of the people who were communists in Germany and, and the despair and the fear of communism that the, the, the real German people had. Because they knew what the Bolsheviks did to Christians in the Ukraine and in the Soviet Union, in, in former Russia, right? They knew what the Bolsheviks did. They knew how many millions of Christians died for, for absolutely no reason on, under the Red Terror in, in Russia in, in the years following the Bolshevik Revolution. That's the real Holocaust. And, and they feared it. So, so this struggle... Well, this struggle was what was the, the, the real patriotic German people saw this struggle against communism in Germany as a struggle of, of life and death of the German people. And, 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 and it was real every day in the streets. It, it wasn't just in the newspapers. And these people eventually, even though a lot of them resisted Hitler and National Socialism, he was an upstart. It was different. It, it, it was extreme to them. Even though they resisted him, eventually they all understood that they had to fall behind him in order to save Germany. And, and they knew the Jews were behind communism. So, so this, this was a very real battle between um, National Socialism, which was the only bulwark at the time against communism. And all of the, the status quo mainstream parties were, were basically, and Blayhood, I believe, explains this pretty well, that they were all basically um, neutered, that they couldn't fight this fight. I'm sorry, go on. 
I was just pointing out that Wiki, of course, doesn't see it that way. They don't see Horst Wessel as a social worker and a poet. They see him as a pimp who was living with a prostitute and a communist pimp vying for the affections of the, the, the prostitute and wanting her back, you know, working for his operation, killed yeah, yeah, well, it's the typical Jewish slander of, 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 of nobility, right, of, of a noble race. Jesus Christ, he was born of a prostitute too, right? I thought he was um, raped by a Rome, um, his mother was raped by a Roman soldier. Yeah, right, but she was a hooker and, and she was raped by a Roman soldier. Right, right. They, they demean everything noble, right? Everything, everything that's good, the Jews will portray like they should portray themselves. Well, when you have Jews in your society, nothing, nothing is sacred anymore. No, everything's debased. Wikipedia is just one big Jewish trash rag. Right, continuing. Two years later, as the general election of July 1932 loomed nearer, the Reds abandoned all pretense of debate and discussion. Bloody terror became the order of the day. In the six-week period before the election, there were, there were more than 450 political riots in Prussia alone. In July, 38 Nazis and 30 communists were killed, but the Red Terror failed. And I'd like to point out here that a lot of people like to blame this on the Nazis. Oh, the Nazis caused all the violence, but this doesn't explain why is there similar communist violence in Canada, America, Britain, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. It doesn't matter where you go. There's no Nazi party in Argentina. There's no Nazi party in New Zealand. The communists in Britain are still setting off bombs, even though there's no Nazis. So anywhere you have Reds and Jews, you have political violence. It's not anything specific or unique to Germany, and it's not due to the National Socialists. There weren't too many Nazis on the street in, in 1960s America, but there were lots of, of left-wing organizations setting up bombs and committing random acts of violence. Today, they're in, the, um, they're in the Obama administration. They've won because nobody stood up to them. In the election, the Nazis more than doubled their number of seats in the Reichstag and became the largest party. And in January 1933, President Hindenburg bowed to the inevitable and asked Adolf Hitler to lead a coalition government. The general election in the March of that year resulted in a clear victory for the National Socialists and their nationalist allies. So at this point, the communists must have seen everything falling apart before their eyes, and, you know, victory was just slipping from their fingers now. Well, well right, and they were upset about it. Red Fury now knew no bounds. In the campaign of violence and illegality that followed, the Union of Red Fighters openly called on their followers to disarm the SA and SS, while a few days later, an official communist publication, Red Sailor, urged, Workers to the barricades, forward to victory, fresh bullets in your guns, draw the pin of your hand grenades. Yeah, some Jew trying to incite people to do his deeds for him. <laughs> and I, I don't know, how, how do you disarm the SA and the SS? They would say, oh, we're just saying that they should be disarmed. Well, it's obviously a call to kill them, because they're not going to voluntarily hand over their weapons to communists. Well, well, right, but you'd have to, uh, since they were private citizens, the SA, they were, they were private citizens, they would, they would have to disarm the citizens of the nation, right? Right, so they're making a, they're, they're cloaking their call behind the seeming legality of a call for gun control and disarmament, but anyone who's a communist and can read between the lines, they know it's a call to murder the SA and SS. Well, well the Jews are always the gun grabbers as soon as they think they have the, the, the upper hand politically. And that's why we see all the agitation over that issue here today. All right. 
A bloody revolution seemed imminent. A signal for its commencement was anxiously awaited, and it appeared to come on 27 February when the Reichstag building in Berlin was set on fire. A Dutch communist, Vanderlube, was arrested near the scene, and subsequently he and four other suspects, including Torgler, the leader of the communist group in the Reichstag, were put on trial. The official report of the provisional inquiry showed that the Red Group had a remarkable number of party meetings in the Reichstag of late, without any reason which could be traced. At Liebnick House, the communist headquarters, named after a leader of the abortive 1918 revolution, which as an aside I will tell you was the 1918 Spartacist uprising in Berlin. And Karl Liebnick, along with Rosa Luxemburg, were executed after their failed attempt to seize Berlin and foment a revolution. Continuing with the article, the authorities found lists of a large number of people who were to have been killed or arrested. Don't the communists always have death lists? You know, when um, during the Tet Offensive, when the communists seized the city of Wei, within about two or three days, they had killed almost 4,000 people. And as it turns out, the Soviet diplomatic personnel in Wei City were helping the Viet Cong draw up kill lists with addresses, names, pictures, physical descriptions that they lacked a picture. So as soon as they had a sizable number of Viet Cong and NVA inside the city of Wei, they just went to specific doors, dragged people out, shot them, and threw them in a pit. And, and I'm sure they have those lists today. Anybody that they think could, could um, pose a formidable political opposition. Because the Jews really hate real political opposition. Right, so I'm, I'm sure if there's a Bolshevik uprising in this country, uh, our names are probably somewhere on the list. Say lobby. <laughs> Vanderlube admitted that he had fired the building and that it was meant to be a signal for revolution. But he claimed, contrary to expert testimony at the trial, that he had destroyed the building single-handed. He stuck to this, his story, but elsewhere the Reds were spreading the lie that the fire had been started by the Nazis themselves and that Vanderloop was a degenerate, half-witted, homosexual prostitute planted on the scene as a fall guy. Well, why would the communists see that as a, as a degeneracy? The, the communists wouldn't have a problem with a half-wit homosexual prostitute, would they? He, well, well right, but, but, but they will disparage half-wit homosexual prostitutes to their political advantage. Right, when it serves them. And here they actually disparaged a, a, um, a leftist, a communist, if he wasn't a communist, he was certainly a communist sympathizer. Yet, you know, they disparaged one of their own tools, basically. Right. They, they disparaged one of their own. They'll throw one of their own on a pyre very quickly. Well, look, look what happened to those two communist party members that helped organize the hit on those police captains. They provided the weapons and the escape route. Then they went to the Soviet Union themselves, and they didn't live past 1937. They knew too much, and they weren't useful anymore. Continuing, just two days after the fire, the Daily Worker, forerunner of the Morning Star, that, that, that's interesting, the, the Morning Star, official organ of the British Communist Party, carried the banner headline, Nazis burned down the German parliament, and then went on to state that the fascists had accused the Communist Party of having done it without a shred of evidence. The Morning Star, it's like a rabbi named the paper just poking fun the door. If I'm not mistaken, isn't Morning Star a reference to Lucifer? Yes. So it seems interesting that the Daily Worker would be a, f a forerunner to the Morning Star. Why are the communists, if they're all atheists, 
why are they naming their papers after demons and devils from, you know, what to them should just be Christian mythology? It, it seems bizarre. Well, it is. Uh, like I said, rabbis name the papers and, and, and they're just mocking the goyim. Right. I mean, if you name a newspaper the Beelzebub Weekly and you tell me you're an atheist, well, I would ask you, why are you picking an Old Testament demon for the name of your newspaper? You're clearly not an atheist. That would be truth in advertising, though. <laughs> Thus was born one of the great myths of modern history, that the Nazis set fire to their own parliament to provide an excuse for curbing the activities of the communists. At this point, though, the communists had done so much that I don't think the Nazis needed an excuse to curb their murderous mayhem. No, absolutely not. 450, 450 political riots in Prussia, and they were all communist. Right, not to mention the dead hostages in Munich in 1919, the uprising in Berlin in 1918, the murder of police captains, the murder of police sergeants and officers. People might think I'm exaggerating, but I'll say the 1920s in Germany was basically a moderate civil war. Continual violence, daily mayhem, that was the order of the day. It wasn't anything like the American Civil War, you know, don't get me wrong, but it was still violent. Living in 1920s Germany was dangerous. Well, definitely, the, the Weimar years were definitely a cultural war, just like we witnessed here in the 60s and 70s. Right, but the Germans fought back and they won. Yes. And then they got a world war for their trouble. Well, well right, and the, the established culture in, in the 19. But after the entire period after World War II, the established culture in America did not fight back uh, against the communists, and the communists won. It might be said that some plausibility was given to the myth by the action of President Hindenburg, who was not a Nazi, on the day after the fire. Fearing that another communist revolution had started, he declared martial law and suppressed Marxist propaganda in Prussia. Well, what was he supposed to do, sit back and let him organize another riot? More substance was provided for the myth when the old Weimar Constitution was changed by the passing of the Enabling Act, which has been falsely represented as giving dictatorial powers to Hitler. The act had nothing to do with the Reichstag fire, but was a necessary part of the government's program for overcoming the grave social and economic crisis in Germany. Nonetheless, such actions provided hooks on which the anti-Nazi media and politicians could hang their multicolored coat of lies and misrepresentation which came to be seriously accepted as authentic history. The trial of Vanderlube and the other suspects should have dispelled any suspicion of Nazi guilt. It was a scrupulously fair trial which resulted in an acquittal of all the defendants except Vanderlube himself. Anti-Nazi propagandists, however, were far from being dismayed. They turned their attention on a brown book of alleged evidence compiled by communist exiles in a farcical counter-trial, which they staged in London, which, not surprisingly, found the Nazis guilty. And I wonder, as an aside, were these communist exiles the same ones who fled to the Soviet Union after killing police captains? Well, right. Well, Blayhood discusses this trial at much greater length, but he doesn't get into the details of who the communists in London were, no. According to the Brown Book, a group of Nazis entered the Reichstag via a tunnel, which was connected to the residence of Hermann Goering, president of the Reichstag. They were supposed to have gained entry at 8.40 p.m. Assuming they did, how would anyone know? How, how would these communists know unless they were there watching? Well, well right, but Blayhood presents all, plenty of evidence, too, that, that, um, that, that proves all of, all of this is, is wrong. 
continuing. It, it's conjecture first on the side of the communists, and and, and it could be disproven. Well, I would but, think they're they're implicating themselves with this. Right. Continuing, they were supposed to have gained entry at 8:40 p.m., set the building on fire, and then left after pushing the half-wit Vanderloop into the building just after 9 p.m. The police arrived on the scene at 9:22 p.m. Evidence was given at the counter trial by witnesses purporting to be the Nazis seeking repentance that they were led by a brown shirt named Hines. He was, it was ascertained later that Hines was making a speech elsewhere at the time of the fire. So it, it sounds like the communists are almost telling on themselves that they're the ones who gained entry at 840. They pushed the half-wit Vanderloop into the building just after 9, and then they fled. But, right, well, Blayhood goes into all that in great detail. Right, well, if I have intimate details of a crime, and I'm trying to pin it on you, shouldn't the police inquire where did I get those intimate details? Well, of course, but this is in Britain, and it's after Hitler comes to power, and the British are, are no fans of National Socialism or Adolf Hitler, right? Right. I mean, if there's been a murder, and the police are saying, you know, it looks like he was poisoned, and I say, poisoned? I saw Bill shoot him, and they say, well, how do you know the man was shot? Continuing. Another confession was supposedly made by Karl Ernst, then chief of the Brown Shirts in Berlin. Apart from the fact that this confession did not turn up until after Ernst's death, how convenient, it slipped up on one vital point. As with the other confessions, it alleged that the Nazi arsonists were in the Reichstag from 8.40 p.m. until 9.30 p.m., but at 8.45 p.m. a postman entered the building to collect the mail and left at 8.55 p.m. without seeing anything out of the ordinary or noticing the smell of gasoline or other fire-raising substances. And if the police were on the scene at 9.22, sealing off the building perimeter, how would someone get out if they were still in there at 9.30? I believe the police were actually on the scene before that, but we'll get into that later. The full truth is not yet known, but sound, basic facts, certainly more than enough to discredit allegations of Nazi responsibility were brought to light in Britain by the liberal historian Professor A.J.P. Taylor, who admits that he had accepted the myth unquestioningly without looking at the evidence. Later, however, on Who Burnt the Reichstag in the August 1960 issue of the specialist magazine History Today, Taylor, working largely on evidence portrayed by Fritz Tobias, an anti-Nazi German civil servant, and which had been published earlier in Der Spiegel, the bastion of objectivity that it clearly is, my words, points out that the Nazis made no attempt to manufacture evidence against the communists, which seems a strange omission if, as alleged, the whole affair was staged to justify the suppression of the communists. Now, um, now this, this reference to this material published earlier in Der Spiegel is a reference to the same 1959 articles that Der Spiegel, the Der Spiegel article that we just read from 2008 had referred to. So we have that this material in Der Spiegel which contradicts the the, um, the allegation that the National Socialists had been responsible for the Reichstag fire. This material in Der Spiegel is referred to here, but it was also referred to by Der Spiegel in in the anti-Nazi 2008 article we read. Right. So so what I'm saying is that that because we're going to get into Blayhut. And, and Fred Blayhood quotes from that material. He, he gives a, a, a summary of the material, let's put it that way, and that material is basically legitimized by Der Spiegel itself, 
where they said in, in the article that I had just read a few minutes at the, at the opening of this program, where they said that their own article in 1959 refutes that, you know, that the Nazis had been responsible for the Reichstag fire. So, 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 so the, the material that we're about to read from Blayhut has basically been corroborated, legitimized by Der Spiegel itself in 2008, right? That's the only point I'm trying to make, that this is legitimate material. It, it was published in, in Der Spiegel in 1959, in the 1950s anyway, and, and it, it, it is an objective look at who set the Reichstag fire without, assum- without assumptions, right? And, and we will find that out. All right. Continuing. As for the counter trial, one of the witnesses was muffled to the eyes, according to Taylor, who wryly adds, this was a wise precaution. He was, in fact, a well-known communist and unmistakably Jewish, end quote. When considering the facts, it seems incredible that the myth of Nazi responsibility for firing the Reichstag could ever have been accepted at all. Yet it was, and by reputable historians such as Alan Bullock, author of Hitler, A Study in Tyranny, and Anthony Sutton, author of Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Now, now Anthony Sutton, you know, he's one of those sources. Uh, I mean, I, I think he did some good work, but, but he's one of those sources that the clowns that think that Hitler was a Rothschild agent get their information from. Right, well... And, and, and he's not very discerning at all, and and he he he's very um, susceptible to taking Jewish lies and 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 writing them into his histories. Well, if he were a reputable, valid historian, he would have written a book: Wall Street and the Rise of the Bolsheviks, Wall Street and the Rise of Lenin, Wall Street and the Rise of Trotsky, and the other guy would have written Stalin: A Study in Tyranny. Yeah, right. Absolutely. One wonders what other mythical versions of history. Historical incidents have been accepted by historians and others without looking at the evidence. Well, well that, that's, the, that, that's the end uh, of the shorter article by Peter Wainwright. And um, Wainwright, the Barnes Review, I don't know if this is the art. This article ran in the Institute for Historical Review some years ago. And, and the Barnes Review has recently, in 2011, published an article by Peter Wainwright, who set the Reichstag fire. I, I don't know if it's this same article or not, and, and I don't have access to it. Perhaps somebody can scan it one day and send it to me or something, or, or, or perhaps I'll have access to it in the future. I don't know. Uh, I stopped my subscription to the Barnes Review in... in um, in two, early 2009, in disgust of, of um, some of Michael Collin Piper's shenanigans, some of the things that they, that they had printed, not only disparagingly of Christianity, but they printed some really harebrained articles um, dealing with the Greek classical period and pre-classical period, and, and they were absolutely off the wall and don't belong in any scholarly historical publication. So for those reasons, I, 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 I stopped subscribing to the Barnes Review. Basically, their, their work centered around um, the, the, the National Socialist era and, and the Holocaust and revisionism is excellent, but they should leave ancient history alone because, well, well Michael Collins Piper is basically a bozo. 
Myths, Wartime Propaganda, and the Burning of the Reichstag by Fred Blayhood. This article ran in, in the Barnes Review in January of 1996. I have the issue here. I will um, I scan this issue and this article, and I will post it with this podcast probably in the morning. If the burning of the German Reichstag brought the National Socialists to power in 1933, were the Nazis responsible for the arson? And if not, who was? That, that, that's a rhetorical question at the beginning of the article inserted by either Blayhood himself or by the editor, right? By 1933, Germany was ripe for another revolution. We're going to see a lot of the Wainwright article in this, but this article is a lot more in-depth. The Moscow-backed communist revolutions of 1919 had been put down at awful cost. And then the Allies imposed reparations that stripped the country of its ability to employ its workers and feed its people, including a British-engineered blockade that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Germans by starvation. The worldwide depression of 1929 hit the country, still staggering under the yoke of the Treaty of Versailles in the gut. Food was scarce. Jobs were disappearing. Those who had jobs earned money that was close to worthless. It was clear that the centrist government of President Paul von Hindenburg and Chancellor Heinrich Brüning were under extreme pressure from both the left and the right and could not hold. Fearing civil war, Hindenburg dismissed Brüning, and in January of 1933 appointed Adolf Hitler, leader of the National Socialists, as chancellor, even though Hitler had no absolute majority in the lower chamber of the German parliament, the Reichstag. And then, on the night of February 27th, the Reichstag building burned. It is important to note that following the armistice of 1918, British Prime Minister Lloyd George had promised the British voters to squeeze the German lemon until the pips squeaked. Germany had been stripped of its industry, its coal reserves in the Saar, and the manufacturing capacities of Alsace-Lorraine, or I should say Alsace-Lothringen. The German Navy and merchant fleet had been seized. Export barriers had been established for German products, while free trade was imposed on imports produced by the Allies. According to Leon de Grel, Germany was experiencing near-famine conditions. It was at this moment the Allies decided to confiscate a substantial part of what was left of Germany's livestock. And that's from Hitler, the book, Hitler, Born in Versailles, by Leon de Grel. Thomas Lamont, the American representative of the Allied powers overseeing Germany, was quoted, The Germans were made to deliver cattle, horses, sheep, goats, etc. A strong protest came from Germany when dairy cows were taken to France and Belgium, thus depriving German children of milk. So the, the, the provisions of Versailles had a, had a much more severe impact on, on Germany in the period between the wars than most Americans could even imagine. Imagine being a, a New England farm boy 
and um, in, in the middle of the, of the Depression, and I state this because some of my ancestors were, and, and then the Canadians come across the border and take your cows away. I mean, right? And, and well, I think you'd, you'd want to go to the war and you'd have a burning hatred. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt. The Versailles was the, what was um, – World War II was inevitable with Versailles. Another war uh, with Germany was inevitable under Versailles. What was well, Britain, France, and Germany? Some French generals report that one of the German generals who was at Versailles, you know, he was there. They made him sign the surrender documents. He signed them, shoved them across the table, and said, see you in 20 years. I don't know if that's fact, but, but I mean, the, the, those, the, those provisions, I, I mean, there's no doubt. Thomas Lamont, the American representative of the Allied powers overseeing Germany. I'm sorry, I read that already. According to de Grell, the question was now, who was going to break the chains? Germany looked for an avenger to smash the Treaty of Vengeance. Treaty of Versailles, Treaty of Vengeance. The Avenger could not belong to the conventional right and left wings of German politics or any other establishment entities, whether financial, military, or religious. In 1925, following the death of German President Friedrich Ebert, Hindenburg, a hero of World War I, was persuaded to run for president. He won easily, but aging and ill, Hindenburg was not the national leader to bring Germany back from the abyss. Prior to Hitler's appointment, the Reichstag had been suspended several times with rule by presidential decree. Neither the left nor the right believed it was Hindenburg himself who was running the country, which staggered on ineffectually. By 1933, Hindenburg had become senile. On this point, European newsman Alec de Montmorency tells a story that was making the rounds in the Paris clubs frequented by journalists. Hindenburg, the story goes, asked one of his close aides in early 1933, who is that young man with the mustache? who keeps bringing me papers to sign. Well, Hitler was 44 at the time. That's not exactly but, but, a young man. I think that this is probably the, um, an embellishment by, by the European press, right? It's right. cute, but that's about it. Immediately after Hitler's appointment, the Reichstag was dissolved, and new elections set for March 5th, what, which was about a week after the fire, right? A not... A, I'm sorry, a violent election campaign ensued. <clears throat> Nothing that the communists do is without violence. On February 24th, the police raided Communist Party headquarters. It was announced that they discovered plans for a new communist revolution. And, and let me say that there's no way that the National Socialists could have control of, of the, the, the various police departments that quickly, right? It's highly unlikely. I'm sure the communists will say that the evidence was planted. It was a frame. Well, it was announced that they had discovered plans for a new communist revolution, but they either didn't discover what they said that they had or the evidence, for unknown reasons, was suppressed because such documentation was never made public. Well, you know, if they had announced it publicly and 
shown everything publicly, it might have caused the communists to speed up their timetable, and it might have worried people, caused a national panic. Maybe the National Socialists just wanted to keep it under wraps and conduct a fairly quiet investigation. Then came the Reichstag fire. Hitler immediately blamed the communists, which would have been a natural reaction at the time. Hindenburg proclaimed a state of emergency and issued decrees suspending freedom of speech and assembly. Thanks to the Red Scare, the National Socialists and their allies, the German Nationalists, won a bare majority in the general election of March 5th. Perhaps they'd have gotten more votes if it weren't for the Reichstag fire. You, you don't know. It, it's not, not fair to um, automatically assess that National Socialists received a boost in the election because of the Reichstag fire. I can't believe that. Shortly thereafter, first the Communist Party and then all other parties except the National Socialists were made illegal. The burning of the Reichstag was the spark that set the country ablaze. If then, the fire was what catapulted Hitler to power, is it not reasonable to assume that the National Socialists had a hand in it? That was the consensus of propaganda in the United States, France, and Britain. And, and it's more like the Jewish imaginings in the press of how they were going to lose Germany. That, that's the way I assess it. The Jews are thinking, what would we do if we were in that position? How would we handle it? They always project themselves onto our people. Right. It's not, we can't, well, we probably can't go back and, and reassess the polling data in this election in, 19, in, in March 5th, 1933. But I, I don't think it's such a given that the National Socialists received a boost in the election because of the Reichstag fire a week later. I, I don't see it that way. I don't think that it's, it, that they made, the fire could have very easily hurt the National Socialists. Right, they might have been seen as weak. Or, or for whatever other reason. Maybe people would have been t tired of hearing of it, right? Right. Maybe people would have been tired of, of, of the, the conflict. It, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that go through the voters' minds, and, and the pollsters and, and the pundits don't always have it right. They don't. We see that every American election. They have it all wrong. So, so it's, it's, I think they're splitting hairs to say that the, uh, the National Socialists received a boost. The, the National Socialists had fared slightly better in every single election that, that they had participated in. And, and they were gaining more and more momentum as time wore on. They get a bare majority. I don't really see that as a, as a great benefit from the Reichstag fire. I mean... I think that's an assumption to say that they got a boost is what I'm trying to say. That itself is an assumption, which shouldn't necessarily be taken for granted. To say that the Nazis benefited in the March 5th election from the Reichstag fire is an assumption, and it shouldn't be taken for granted. The National Socialists blamed the communists and tried to establish the guilt of communist party leaders in a trial at the High Court at Leipzig, they failed. And, and yes, that probably was a calculated, well, well an error of, of calculation on the part of, of the National Socialists. That led to the generally accepted theory that the National Socialists themselves torched the building, and, and that's only how the communists turned the propaganda around on them, and, and we'll see that. This version has been generally accepted 
It appears in most textbooks, and many reputable historians repeat it. And, and, and Blayhood's going to quote A.J.P. Taylor, just as um, the last article we read did, Wainwright. According to A.J.P. Taylor in History Today, I myself, he says, accepted it unquestioningly without looking at the evidence. Well, you know, Earl, in a typical criminal trial, you have to prove guilt beyond all reasonable doubt. So if they failed to prove guilt at Leipzig, that would suggest that they didn't plant any evidence because if they were going to carry out the incident themselves and frame the communists, they wouldn't do a half-assed frame job, pardon the language. They would have made it an airtight, ironclad frame-up. This is basically like saying, oh, well, since the, um, the, the county and the police failed to prove O.J. did it, it must have been the police themselves, and they're trying to frame O.J. Well, well right, and, and that's exactly the point Blayhood makes later on in this article, it, is that if the National Socialists had set the fire, they, being in power, they would have manufactured evidence against the communists. Right, you don't, you don't laugh together. Right, then they would have used that evidence at that trial, and the truth is that they really had no evidence against the, against the communists. And that's why the communists who were accused had, had, had overcome at the trial and had been found, well, well they were found not guilty. That's why. If, if the Nazis had set the fire, they'd have made up stuff about the communists. They'd have found some evidence. That they'd, have, that they'd have created a way to blame them. And they didn't. Because the, the National Socialists didn't set the fire. And, and in reality, because one or two or whatever, but because some national socialists, some prosecutors who happen to be national socialists think they can make a case, that, that doesn't mean that all the national socialists should be blamed for, for um, unrighteously bringing communists to trial at Leipzig. It's just, it, it just doesn't work that way. Right, but typically if you have an opportunity to bring your political opponents to trial, you seize it. Well, concerning the, 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 the theory that the National Socialists set the Reichstag fire, A.J.P. Taylor says in History Today, I myself accepted it unquestioning, unquestioningly without looking at the evidence. And Blayhood continues and says, but someone did look at the evidence. A retired civil servant and anti-Nazi named Fritz Tobias he began his project, it is reported, with the idea of settling once and for all the fact that the Nazis had been responsible for the fire. But that's not what he discovered. The results of his investigation were serialized in the German weekly Der Spiegel in 1950. Now, now the other article, that the other Der Spiegel, the 2008 Der Spiegel article that we had presented here earlier this evening, talked about articles that ran in Der Spiegel in 1959. This evidently ran in 1950, but, but still, even if it's not the same article, the other article does admit that articles, earlier articles in Der Spiegel, Der Spiegel did um, refute the idea that the National Socialists set the Reichstag fire. Back to Blayhood. Here's the story as detailed by Tobias, and, and Blayhut is basically summarizing the, the, um, the work that, that Tobias had published in the 1950s in Der Spiegel. At just about 9 p.m. on February 27, 1933, a theology student, later a lecturer at Bremen, named Hans 
Floater was on his way home after a day of research and study at the library. As he crossed the open space in front of the Reichstag, he heard the sound of breaking glass. He looked up and saw someone climbing into the building through a window on the first floor. The building was otherwise deserted, except for a night watchman who apparently did not hear the breaking glass. Floater ran to the corner and found a policeman. Someone is breaking into the Reichstag, he reported. The two men ran back to the building. Through the window, they saw a shadowy, unidentifiable figure and something more ominous. Flames. It was 9.03 p.m. Floater, and, and this is the first police on the scene at the Reichstag fire, right? It's 9.03 p.m. Floater, having done his duty, went home. He had not yet had supper and was hungry. At this point, Another passerby joined a policeman, a young printer called Thaler, who was incidentally a social democrat and definitely no supporter of the National Socialists. Thaler shouted, shoot, man, shoot. The policeman fired his revolver into the building and the shadowy figure disappeared. So, so we have these people were interviewed later. That's how their names are known. They, they were interviewed later in, in, by the authorities and the newspapers. And this Fritz Tobias, he went back in the 1950s, well, where this was first published in 1950, right? But which was pretty close to, to, it was only 17 years after the fact, and it was only five years after the end of the war. He tried to prove that the National Socialists did set the Reichstag fire and came to the opposite conclusion. And he had, evidently, in order to be able to print all this, all of the original records, and this was reproduced by Der Spiegel in, the in 1950. But, of course, you, you know, the Western press, five years after World War II, the Western press, which was practically all communists, the mainstream papers in the West, what would they care about this? They wouldn't care about this. This information would never, would never be trumpeted in the Western press. No way. Okay, back to Blayhood. The policeman, the, the policeman at 9.03 p.m. that was first shown that somebody broke into the Reichstag, right? The policeman ran to the nearest police post and gave the alarm. The time recorded was 9.15 p.m. Within minutes, police backup arrived at the Reichstag. At 9.22, a police officer tried to enter the debating chamber. He was driven back by the flames. At 9.27, the police discovered and arrested a half-naked young man. He was a Dutchman named Marinus Vanderlube. Well, I'd like to point out at this time you know, something fairly important as to why this man may have been half naked there's something called pyrophilia it's a subset of pyromania it's where somebody receives sexual gratification from either watching or starting a fire and that might explain why this man was half naked and he had a history of arson so it might not just be a political statement on his part it's a political statement and he's getting kicks out of it interesting because it is a question why he's half naked right right well there have been reports that some arsonists in this country who derive sexual pleasure from arson, they've admitted that they would wear, you know, protection while they were starting the arson because they would spontaneously, you, well, you, you know what would happen. Like condom protection? Right, they, they would wear a condom while starting ah. a fire so they could stand back at the scene and watch the building burn 
Brian, I was only kidding about the condom. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I kid you not. It's, there have been several cases. I think it was in the um, DSM-3 and the DSM-4. There have been some cases of um, pyrophilia. It's fairly rare, not, as, um, not nearly as common as pyromania. But I think it's somewhat fitting that this man has a history of arson, and he's half naked in a building that he probably started on fire. So he's not just some halfwit that, you know, um, some drunk homosexual prostitute they knocked on the back of the head, stripped half naked, and threw him in the building. I think he's there getting his jollies and kicks. Okay. That, that's, I, I guess it's possible. It's pretty sick, though. Well, I mean, it is pretty darn sick, and it's pretty rare, and most of the people it's diagnosed, and it seems they have very Jewish names. Meanwhile, the fire brigade had also been alerted. The first report is recorded at 9.13. The first engine reached the Reichstag at 9.18. But the firemen, had no, the firemen had problems entering the building to fight the blaze. Only one side door was kept unlocked after 8 p.m. The firemen, not knowing this, went to the wrong door. Gaining entrance, the firemen fought the first fires they came to. Small blazes in the corridors, it turns out, and not the main fire. Eventually, the full strength of the Berlin Fire Brigade was mobilized, a force of some 60 engines. The time was 9.42 p.m., but by then, the building was beyond help. Seen as evidence of Nazi involvement in the blaze was the fact that across the street from the Reichstag building was the residence sometimes called a palace, of its president. The National Socialists being in charge of the legislative body, the president of the Reichstag on February, February 27, 1933, was Nazi leader Hermann Goering. But Goering had not yet moved in, but while the National Socialists were only in power for about a month. The building was unoccupied except for an apartment on the top floor, which Goring had lent to Putzi Hanfstangel, Hitler's foreign press chief. Hearing a commotion, Hanfstangel, I'm probably butchering that name, right? Hanfstangel looked out the window and saw the Reichstag burning. He knew that Hitler and Joseph Goebbels were at a party nearby, but they were not in, in the president's residence, right? That, that's what's important. He phoned Goebbels. It, if Goebbels and Hitler were in the presidential residence, they would have, he would have just went downstairs, right? He phoned Goebbels, who thought Hans Stangl was playing some sort of practical joke, and hung up. Hans Stangl called back. Goebbels checked with the police and found the report was true. Within a few minutes, he, Hitler, and a large group of National Socialists who had been at the party arrived at the Reichstag. An English journalist, Sefton Delmer, managed to join the crowd. Hitler, he reported, was very upset. And, and, and Blayhood, um, Blayhood opines here that certainly that was not the demeanor of a man responsible for the action. This is a communist plot, the signal for an uprising, Delmore reported Hitler yelling to his supporters. Every communist official must be shot. Well, Hitler probably yelled that before the Reichstag burned down, right? The communist members of the Reichstag must be hanged. Vanderlube, meanwhile, 
had taken to the nearest police station. He was interrogated until 3 a.m. of February 28th. He was allowed to sleep for a few hours, awakened, given breakfast, and at 8 a.m., the questioning resumed. He gave clear, coherent answers. He described, and, and this is what I meant before about how Vanderloob's confession was very detailed, right? He gave clear, coherent answers. He described how he had entered the Reichstag and started a series of fires, even using some of his clothing to help the blazes get going. So we learn why he was half naked, right? I, I, I read this earlier and forgot that paragraph was there. The police thoroughly and methodically checked his story. They well, you know, Bill, if he wants to say he took his clothing off to help the blazes get going, that seems a bit far fetched. But well, well, right. It doesn't. It, it doesn't prove your statement wrong. I mean, right. I'm just saying that of how wild it is. It doesn't right. prove it wrong. If, if he if he didn't want to come right out and say that he took his clothes off to gratify himself because he gets his jollies from starting fires, and they want to know why were your clothes off, and he said, "Oh, I took them off to help the fire get going." Fine. I mean, that, that sounds like a silly explanation, but if, if, he, if you wanted to get away from a fire in, in, in the middle of a large city <laughs> at, at night, you would take your clothes off. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. I mean, what, what was his plan? I, it, it seems like he didn't have this very well thought out. He, he wasn't. He wasn't planning an egress. He wasn't planning an escape unless his plan was to run down the street of Berlin with his pants and his underwear left in the Reichstag. Right. I know Berlin was pretty decadent during the time <laughs> years, but I don't know if you could if you could run down around the streets naked. I mean, it'd be like wearing a sign. Here I am, right? Well, it, it would make it a bit easy to identify you when when police are asking people, "Did you see anything?" Well, I saw a guy with no pants running from the building. Oh, okay, put out an APB. The guy with no pants. The police thoroughly and methodically checked his story. They retraced his route through the through the Reichstag with a stopwatch and determined that the timing was correct for his entrance through a window to the time of his arrest. Vanderlube was clear about his motive. He had hoped that the entire German people would protest against the Nazi government. When this did not happen, he determined that he would protest individually. Although the burning of the Reichstag was certainly a signal for revolt, he called it a beacon. He had given the signal alone, he insisted. He denied that he had any associates or fellow plotters. He said that he knew no Nazis. He was not a member of the Communist Party. He was a socialist, more politically in tune with the left wing of the centrist government. Vanderloob, at least that was the admission at the time, right? And that was what he stuck to until his death. Vanderloob proved a willing witness well, against Bill, himself. He wasn't just a socialist. He was an actual card-carrying member of the Dutch Communist Party, the CPN. And earlier, he was a member of the youth section called the Communist Youth Boond. Well, well if that can be proven from other sources, that's fine. But here, in, in his confession, he denied being a member of the Communist Party. Right. But, I mean, even Wiki admits he was in the um, Dutch Communist Party. Okay. That, well, well, that must be other sources that were even unknown to Blayhood in 1996, but that's fine. Right, because if, if Wiki could get away with denying he was in the Communist Party, they'd try and pull that. Well, I'm certain. 
Vanderloop proved a willing witness against himself. He traced his movement for police during the weeks prior to the arson. He had drifted across Germany, apparently searching for anti-Nazi sentiment and finding nothing approaching the mass revolt he had hoped for. It, it doesn't seem like the work of a centrist to do that, right? But that was what, what he was willing to admit to and, and what he stayed with through his trial. He said he was in the left wing of the centrist government. Well, I, I guess... Oh, Blayhood, Blayhood is saying that he, his oh. political position more closely identified with the left, the left centrists of the time. Well, centrists tend not to roam around a country trying to find people to help them burn down the parliament building. Well, that's why I said this, that, that this isn't really in line with, with, with his you know, professed or, or his admitted political persuasion, right? right. A communist would do this, but a, a, a centrist... And even a socialist, you know, that that was a moderate, probably wouldn't do things like this, right? I mean, a socialist might throw a rock at a cop during a protest, but they're probably not going to burn down the Congress. Well, well, it seems to me that perhaps Vanderloop wanted to, um, perhaps he did act alone, and because he acted alone, he he wanted to deflect the Communist Party that that he, he probably was a member of. He wanted to deflect the blame from them, right? I mean, they're, 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 he probably had motives for, for right. the story that he gave, but he was consistent through the trial, right? Right, and he was happy to deflect the blame away from them, and they were happy to hang everything on him and call him a... Yeah, right, a, 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 a perverted homosexual, right. Well, which goes with your theory about the... the, the <laughs> the getting off on the on the flames. Vanderloo proved a willing witness against okay against himself. He traced his movement for for police during the weeks prior to the arson. He had drifted across Germany, apparently searching for anti-Nazi sentiment and finding nothing approaching the mass revolt he had hoped for. He even told police where he had purchased. Firestarter, a petroleum-based liquid used, as its name implies, to start fires and matches. The police checked his story. Everything he said proved to be correct. The police officials conducting the investigation concluded that Vanderlube was deranged, but above average in intelligence, with an exceptionally accurate sense of place and direction. He knew where he had been and what he had been doing. He even remembered small details of his wanderings, purchases, and arson. His interrogators were experienced men, professionals with no political connections. They became convinced that he was telling the truth and that he had set fire to the Reichstag all by himself with no outside help or even encouragement. Firemen who had been at the scene agreed that the sequence of arson events detailed by Vanderlube matched their investigation results. That conclusion didn't sit well with Hitler and the upper cadre of the National Socialists. Locked in a bitter battle with the communists to gain control of the Reichstag, they had committed themselves to the proposition that the fire was a communist plot. Whether or not they believed this, it was the story that had to be sold to the German public if they were to defeat the communists at the polls. Now, a lot of that seems to be conjecture, but it is true that the Germans, once they, well, once they assumed that the communists were behind the burning of the Reichstag, 
They never backed off that story. Vanderlube and four others were tried for the arson. A man named Torgler, the leader of the communist bloc in the Reichstag, and three Bulgarian communists, including Georgi Dimitriov. Dimitrov. Vanderlube's guilt was beyond question. He had been found in the Reichstag and he admitted starting the fires. But that wasn't what was worrying the Nazis. And, and let me say that Blayhood uses the word Nazis, right? Not, not, not myself. Everyone accepted Vanderlube's guilt. It was the communists the Nazis wanted convicted. A number of expert witnesses were produced with Nazi help by the prosecution with the intention of proving that the fire could not have been started by one man. But Vanderloop proved to be the best witness for the, other for the other defendants. Testifying for hours, he told the judges that it, that it was he and he alone who was responsible. He was quoted, I was there and they, meaning the other four defendants, were not. I know how it was done because I did it. The high court arrived at a complex verdict. First, Vanderloo was found guilty. He was subsequently executed. Blayhut makes a parenthetical statement here. He says that arson was not a crime punishable by death, but Hitler managed to shove through a law to that effect and make its ramifications retroactive, a decision that would come back to haunt him. Well, well I'm sure Hitler ex expected to, to um, catch a lot of his political opposition with the gallows at that time, right? Absolutely, and as I pointed out, they didn't have to do that to get Vanderloop. They could have, his, his, the words from his own mouth, he said he was hoping to instigate a revolution. Okay, boom, high treason fomenting revolution, sedition, terrorism, insurrection, rebellion, those are all capital offenses. That, that's, that, that's very plausible if Hitler knew that Vanderloop was going to say those things, right? Hmm. And, and I'm sure he didn't. So there you have it. The other four defendants were found innocent, but the court agreed with the Nazi-provided expert witnesses that the Dutchman could not have done it alone, and that, therefore, the Reichstag had been torched by Vanderlube and persons unknown. The Nazis had been hoist by their own petard. If Vanderlube had accomplices, and the accomplices were not communists, who were they? The implication was that the accomplices must have been national socialists a point made repeatedly in court by Dimitrov and echoed by the establishment media throughout the Western world. Well, well of course, the establishment media would, would side immediately with the communists since they were all Jews or, or, or Jewish sympathizers or Jewish employees. Dimitrov, incidentally, fled Germany following the trial to the USSR, where he rose in the ranks of Soviet officialdom and later returned to Bulgaria to take over leadership of the communist government there. So, so I guess he escaped the purges, huh? The propaganda possibilities of the high court decision were not lost on the communists. Enter a man named Willy Munzenberg a German expatriate communist popular with the media and the pro-communists in the West. 
particularly Great Britain, the communists published what was called the Brown Book about the fire, filled with the alleged evidence of National Socialist complicity in the arson. That the communists, I'm sorry, that the communist evidence of Nazi involvement was no more convincing than the Nazis' evidence of communist complicity was lost on the popular press. And I would say that they didn't really care about that. They only cared about their agendas, right? Dimitrov, incidentally, fled Germany following the trial to the USSR, where he rose in the ranks of Soviet officialdom and later returned to Bulgaria to take over leadership of the communist government there. The propaganda possibilities of the high court decision were not lost on the communists. Enter a man named Willie Munson. I'm, I'm sorry, I just read that. I I'm, I'm, must be tired. Subsequently, the communists staged a counter-trial in London, and, and that should tell you right there that it was a joke, right? Not unexpectedly, that not unexpectedly brought in a guilty verdict against the Nazis. Considered vital evidence in the counter-trial was the existence of a tunnel. This is the tunnel mentioned in the Der Spiegel article in 2008. Between Goring's residence and the Reichstag, which carried electric and telephone cables and pipes for central heating. That now Goring had not yet inhabited Goring's residence. According to the communists, a group of brown shirts had used the tunnel to enter the Reichstag and soaked the curtains in woodwork with a flammable liquid which caught fire when Vanderlube struck the match or, alternately, they set the fire themselves. So, so they couldn't even make up their minds, right? According to the later version, when all was ready, Vanderlube was pushed through the window into the Reichstag by an unnamed accomplice of the brown shirts, there to be found and arrested. The Brown Book also alleged that, far from being an intelligent socialist, Vanderlube was a degenerate halfwit and a homosexual prostitute. But Brian, this works right in with your theory about <laughs> about his um, affection for fire, right? Right. Well, if, if they're saying he was a degenerate and a pervert, they must have had at least something to go on. Right? I mean, if they made a wild, baseless accusation that didn't have an ounce of truth, it'd be very obvious and immediately found out, and they'd be humiliated and embarrassed. I mean, if you call the Pope a, a degenerate and a sex fiend, you, you, you better have some strong evidence. So to, to call their fellow comrade a what was it a degenerate halfwit and homosexual prostitute and it gets it gets better he he's working with the SA leader well well i i, I don't right I, I don't know if they're disparaging him just to to build up their case that that they that he was in league with the the nazis and the brown shirts right it, it's it's um hard to say yeah, well, well, I believe this is Ernst Rome, right? The Brown Book also alleged that far from being an intelligent socialist, Vandalube was a degenerate halfwit and a homosexual prostitute kept by brown shirt leader Ernst Rome. This was the story accepted by the Western press in 1933. 
and subsequently historians. It became something everyone knows without anyone actually examining the facts. Was, was it public knowledge that Ernst Rome was a, was a sexual degenerate in the Western press? I don't know. I'm asking. I, I don't know because I don't it, think it was. It was kind of an open secret in elite German circles, though. Right. It was an open secret in elite German. I don't think it was public knowledge, though. In, no, in, I don't think the New York Times would have known about it. Well, if they did, we'd at least be able to find one article about it mocking Hitler. You know, saying, oh, Hitler's top guy is a homosexual pervert. Hitler stands, you know, claims to stand for purity and the restoration of Germany, and he's surrounded by homosexuals. Well, Rome had to go, and he did. We'll talk about that one night, too. There were allegations that the fire brigades were deliberately delayed by the Nazis, but the record books of the aforementioned brigades disprove this. And almost all history books say the records of Vanderloop's interrogation by the police have mysteriously disappeared. But again, that isn't true. Tobias found them where they were supposed to be, in the office where they had always been, in eight copies. Vanderloop, having been characterized by the Nazis as a communist dupe, was treated even more harshly by the communists. Included in the Brown Book is a statement by a Dutch friend of the arsonist. One sentence reads, I often spent a night in the same bed with him. This was used by the communists as proof of his homosexuality. But according to Taylor... What does that that really mean? Uh, if If they're sharing a bed in 1930s Germany and they're both poor, that doesn't necessarily mean he's a homosexual. But well, that that's probably true. But in in the Western mind, it would certainly be a strong inference that something may have been going on, right? Right. But if I'm not mistaken, at one point in this nation's history, an entire family would share one bed. Yes, and 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 we see that even in the Hebrew Bible, where an entire family shares the same bed. Right. According to Taylor, the the historian AJP Taylor, right. The sentence originally went on without observing any homosexual tendencies in him. In other words, the Dutch friend said, I often spent a night in the same bed with him without observing any homosexual tendencies in him. The communists cut the end of the sentence off to make it look like they were both homosexuals. Leave it to the Jews to do that. Taylor goes on to point out that all the stories about Vanderloop's bad upbringing, about his disreputable family, and his lack of friends were in fact lies, communist forgeries. The most vital evidence produced by the communists was the tunnel and the allegation that it had been used by the brown shirts. This, the communists alleged, had been revealed by repentant brown shirts to communists in Paris. It's always anonymous people, right? One alleged brown shirt appeared at the counter trial with a muffler wrapped around his face to conceal his identity, a muffler, a scarf. It was a wise precaution, according to Taylor, because the witness was, in fact, a well-known communist and unmistakably Jewish. Another confession supposedly came from one Karl Ernst, 
brown shirt leader in Berlin. Conveniently, the confession turned up after Ernst was dead, killed in the purge of June 30th, 1934, the night of the long knives. Even more convenient, Ernst cleared up any items in the earlier communist versions of the arson where inaccuracies had been proven. But one point, Ernst, or the, the, the confession that was attributed to Ernst, but one point Ernst got wrong. His postmortem confession agreed with other confessions that the brown shirts entered the Reichstag at 8.49 p.m. This had to be the time if they were if they were to do their work before Vanderlube was pushed through the window at 9.03. Unfortunately, Ernst, or the communist forgers, were unaware of one item in the Reichstag routine. At 8.45 p.m., a postman came through the side door. That was the one door that was left open, right? A postman came through the side door to collect the deputy's mail. On February 27th, he entered as usual, walked through the deserted building, and left at 8.55 p.m. He found nothing out of the ordinary, no shadowy figures, no smell of flammable liquid. In fact, the postman disproves the accomplices theory, no matter who those accomplices were alleged to have been because of the time sequences. In other words, the, the, the postman's presence in the Reichstag for those 10 minutes at that time disproves the theory that either communists or Nazis helped Vanderlube set the fire. And then there is the small fact overlooked by historians that when Goring arrived at the Reichstag at 9.35 p.m., having been alerted by his friend, he immediately thought entrance might have been gained through the tunnel. He was quoted, they, and remember Goring was not in the, the presidential residence when the fire broke out. He was somewhere else with Hitler and Goebbels, right? He immediately thought entrance might have been gained through the tunnel. He was quoted, they, meaning the arsonists, must have come through the tunnel. He immediately went off with several policemen, not Nazis, to examine the tunnel. They found the doors at either end securely locked. Would Goring, and, and this is Blayhood's ration, r r reasoning here, would Goring have called for a search of the tunnel if he or his compatriots had been responsible for the fire? Hardly likely. He and the police might have caught the conspirators exiting on the Goring residence side. In non-ideological retrospect, the same lack of evidence that exonerates the communists serves to also exonerate the National Socialists. If the Nazis had set fire to the Reichstag, they would have manufactured evidence against the communists, just as the communists manufactured evidence against the Nazis in the Brown Book and the counter trial or, or the show trial they put on in London, right? The Brown Book was not intended to be closely examined. If it achieved its propaganda purpose, which it did, in the UK and the United States at least, 
Munzenberg and his associates were satisfied. But, well, of course, the Western press, they ate it right up. And people, people that are supposed to be on the nationalist side of the argument today, they repeat it. It's well, you know, Bill, this gentleman named Munzenberg, you know, Munze, M-U-N-Z-E in German, it typically means coin. A coin, Munze, M-U-N-Z-E. So his name is basically Coinberg or Moneyberg. <laughs> I, I, it makes me wonder, is he a German? Well, I, I don't wonder. I know. I, I just, I, I'm begging the question. Right. That, that's interesting. Here is what can be determined from the facts that can be proved. No one came through the tunnel. There was no other way to enter the Reichstag except past the night watchman or by breaking the window. Only Vanderloo broke a window. Those who want to stick to the communist version, although they admit they can't prove how the Nazis got into the Reichstag, point to the trial testimony that Vanderloo had to have had help. And the, the Nazis were forcing that testimony because they wanted to convict some party communists along with Vanderloop, and that was a political ploy that failed them. It failed them in more more ways than one. Not all political ploys are, are good ones, right? But this evidence is the most unreliable at all. The most emphatic expert was, according to Taylor, a crank distrusted by his colleagues. He claimed to be an authority on a strange fluid, which, he said, was necessary for starting fires. He alleged that this fluid had a distinctive smell, but no policeman or fireman at the scene noticed any smell except smoke, no fluid, not even gasoline. How could Vanderloop have set the fire himself? These old, grandiose buildings were fires waiting to happen. They were heavy, there were heavy, dusty curtains everywhere, wooden paneling, high ceilings, drafts under the doors, everything capable of supporting a fire. In 1934, the Houses of Parliament at Westminster in the UK were entirely destroyed by fire simply by a stovepipe becoming too hot. If this is too historical for today's reader, in 1956, the Vienna Stock Exchange was gutted by fire as the result of one smoldering cigarette in a waste paper basket. Vanderloob had over 20 minutes to start fires, more than enough time. One point. The postman left the building at 8.55 p.m. How did Vanderloop know it was safe to break in? He couldn't have. It was a lucky break, a coincidence. In any event, Hitler was well known for his penchant to improvise, and it is obvious that is what he did while, while watching the Reichstag burn. Here was his chance to demonize the communists to his own advantage. He couldn't have known the outcome of that decision. It, it was probably a bad political move to force the, the blame or to attempt to force the blame on the communists and, and, and bring them to the trial. But that's besides the point. Doing that doesn't prove that the National Socialists were involved and the evidence refutes that either group was involved. The evidence, indeed shows that Vanderloop had done it by himself. That Vanderloop was guilty is beyond question. There is more evidence to acquit 
both the communists and the national socialists of complicity and evidence to convict either group. But Germany lost the war, and the communists won, and the winners write the history books. And that's the way it is. But for people to... uh, for, for people to continue to blindly repeat the Jewish communist lie that the Nazis burned the Reichstag, well, well that, there you have it. it. It's a ridiculous accusation, and the evidence is totally contrary to the statement. Do you have any closing remarks? Would you like to know the end that Mr. Munzenberg met? Why not? He was last seen alive in June 1940 in Paris. He had been recalled to Moscow because he was an NKVD agent who had been denounced for being a, a devi- for deviating from Stalin's interpretation of Marxism-Leninism. He refused to go to Moscow, saying that he, he might not come back. Stalin called him a Trotskyist, and he was last seen in the company of two members of the NKVD. And then about um, three or four months later, some people who were hunting in the countryside in France found his partially decomposed body in the woods. He had been strangled. Very good. It's too bad he didn't hang out with Eli Weasel. <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here. All of these tools and fools, these pawns, they all wind up meeting a, an untimely demise, don't they? Well, well, right. I mean, Satan's house is no doubt divided against itself in, in every respect. But the um, well, look at pack of wolves. They're going to get the, the purges of Jews in, in the Stalin regime were incredible in, in in Russia, and and for that reason, the Jews are able to portray Stalin as an anti-Semite when really he was just wiping out his own Jewish competition. Right, a Jew killing Jews. You know, it's uh, Dutch Schultz who wants to go after. Um... Bugsy Siegel, or whatever it might be. Right, they did it all the time. They still do it all the time. Right, so well, when you run with a pack of wolves, you're going to get chewed up and spit out. Absolutely. Thankfully, that that, that they do chew each other and up and spit each other out all the time. Otherwise, we, we, we would be overwhelmed. All right. Okay, I guess that's it. That That's the burning of the Reichstag fire. And um, Marinus Vanderloob evidently did it all by himself. Should we send a copy of this program to Alex Jones? That would be a waste of time. That 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 would be like... Um, well, he'll just say we're Rothschild agents. We're part of the Nazi death cult that rules the world. That that would be like trying to convince Stalin that Munzenberg is okay. <laughs> okay, but, thank you for joining me tonight. We'll be here next week. The program material. Maybe we'll do Shills Part Six next week. I, I don't know. We'll talk about it during the week. Some point in the next month, you, you were saying maybe we should get into Ernst Rome. Yeah, yeah, we should get into Ernst Rome. We should get into the the Night of the Long Knives and and have a discussion of that. That would be interesting. Excellent. That, that's another um, misunderstood episode in National Socialist history. What which the enemies of truth try to use in 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 an attempt to discredit national socialism. Right, to portray Hitler as some bloodthirsty tyrant who was killing all opposition to consolidate his nefarious hold on power when those people were plotting a coup. Absolutely. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Good night. I'll be here next Friday with Acts chapter 13, part 2.